So the focus of this class is going to be dealing with different false doctrines and different things that we may run into as we are trying to be evangelistic. And that is and that's a key point because this class is not going to be an overview of many different false doctrines. It's going to be very targeted at practical usage of when you bump into a coworker or you bump into that same person at the grocery store over and over again or it's a friend at school or wherever it may be. Actually using this material when you've only got 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes at the most to get your foot in the door and be able to speak to somebody and get them thinking and getting them to be aware that there's something else going on than just their world that they're used to. So the focus is going to be in practical persuasion of those who uh, believe error. Alright, so I handed out some questions and I like to, as far as when I teach, my outline is usually the questions that I hand out. And I usually like to focus on the questions as well. So, uh, now most of the questions that I've got, if you guys didn't get a chance to look at them already, I think you'll probably find that a lot of these you've had some experience with. So, don't panic. So, hopefully you'll be able to give us some valuable input. And one other footnote before I start. This class is kind of selfishly arranged on my part. Uh, usually, when somebody teaches a class, they should be giving out material. But I'm looking to get material in this class. I'm looking to learn from you. There's a lot of people here with a lot more experience, a lot more wisdom, and a lot more knowledge than I. So I'm looking forward to your comments and to the answers that you may have as well. All right, so first question that I have, kind of rearranged a little bit. What's the reasons for this class? And I think this, this goes with the first question in your handout. When you engage in any Bible study with someone else um, or any kind of spiritual discussion, what kind of goals would you have in mind? What kind of goals should the discussion have? Probably two goals that I think of forever. One is that uh, we learn the true gospel ourselves, and then uh, the second goal would be to teach others and we have opportunity. Very good, very good. What else? Spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. You know, if you prepare a lesson like you do in a thing, you probably don't fit it twice as hard as any of the rest of us do. Hopefully so. So it's going to. So you should grow. Anything else? We give an opportunity to give a good example. Okay. We actually show that we listen to someone and let them plead their case and then give the feedback or the teaching that would be appropriate in the appropriate attitude and the appropriate manner. That, uh, that would make show us as a, a good example and to where people won't be offended yes, by yes. those who are the church of Christ. Yes, very much. Uh, what we say is very important, but how we say it is also very important. We can do a lot of teaching in, in that as well. There's, I think the, the things that I came up with uh, encapsulate a lot of what you're saying. You know, one, one of the primary points that I can think of is evangelism. You can think of this as offense. This is trying to reach other people. And, of course, we do this because we're bound by both duty and love. We have commands, right? We have the Great Commission, uh, what Paul said to Timothy about, as you teach others, teach those who can turn, teach others as well. And the chain just keeps going and going. So we're bound by duty but also by love, right? Think about Jesus speaking to Peter there in that last chapter of John. He said, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And every time Peter said, yes, of course, he would say, well, feed my sheep. So if we love Jesus, well, we're going to be interested in the same mission that Jesus was interested in, which is seeking and saving the lost, feeding his sheep. So reaching others, hopefully saving a soul. Um, but also you can think of this as defense, apologetics, for glory and for shame. 
All right. And what do I mean by that? Well, for God's glory. We're trying to bring glory to God so that other people will see Him. But also, uh, 1 Peter 3.15 that we quote a lot about having an answer that we can provide at any time. Well, the verse after that, verse 16 says, so that the people who accuse you may be ashamed. And so, when we do this, this gets back to what Doug was saying. If we say the right things in the right way, then somebody who's brought some accusation against us, and more importantly against God, then that will give them some pause for thought. Maybe cause them to be ashamed of what they've done and look at themselves and think about that. So for you know, evangelism, apologetics, this is our offense and defense. And then uh, getting to what Pete and Brother Craig said, uh, for strength and for purity. So looking at ourselves as well. Uh, certainly as we speak to other people, you, know, you think of maybe someone who's young in the faith, and they're thinking, well, how do I know what's right? How do I know that what I've been brought up is right? There's some questions, and when they go to bed at night, they may sleep uneasy. But somebody who's dealt with this over and over again, they can say, well, here's all the different beliefs out there. They think this, they think this, they think that. This is wrong, this is wrong. It, it conflicts with this scripture, that scripture. Somebody who's had that experience and has dealt with people and thought about those questions they have a lot more confidence and they can sleep easier compared to somebody who hasn't had a chance to look at those and think about those yet. So for our own personal strength. And of course, when you do that, that's going to cause us to be humble. It's very easy to read books and come up with answers. But if we don't talk to other people about that, what's going to happen? It's going to elevate our own sense of awareness and it will become arrogant. We'll think we know it all. But as soon as you start talking to real people, and you realize, well, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I have some other things that I need to understand. And so it, it can take you down several notches. <clears throat> so interacting with others is very good to help keep us humble. And then, of course, uh, it helps us to enhance our integrity. And by that I mean that, again, if we stand back and we withdraw ourselves and we just read books and we just talk to each other about what's right and what's wrong, well, how do we know we're not just playing the hypocrite? How do we know that what we believe really is right? We're not trying to maintain some set of traditions. And that's certainly a way to go about this. When you will talk with other people say, well, this is, this is what's right and I'm going to fight for it for the death. Well, but that's not who we are. We're interested in the truth. And that is more important than anything else, than maintaining some tradition or some allegiance to anything else. And so as you talk to other people, we will have an opportunity to test our integrity and improve upon that. And then, of course, purity for both ourselves, our family, the local church, and the greater brotherhood. As we study these kinds of topics, it enables us to help keep those things at bay from coming into the church and keeping those out. So to help maintain our spiritual purity for both ourselves and everyone that we know and that we have an influence on. So for all these things, uh, I think are good as we're studying with other people. Okay. So as we study with other people, I think there's, there's two different things that I can think of that are the primary barriers that prevent good Bible study and prevent Christian unity. One of them that I can think of is there's a failed motivation. And that seems to be a very common one when you talk to people, well, why should I study with you? What, they just don't even care to want to study. And there's various reasons for that. And I want to start with the first part of the class looking at some of these failed motivations and dealing with that. Now, the other reason I'll go ahead and mention is because many people have the wrong standard. They're just simply working from a different foundation than we are. And that has to be addressed. Because if, if we don't have a common foundation when we're talking and working with someone, then we're not going to be able to go anywhere. So we've got to get that straight as well. So that's the, the primary purpose of today's class is to 
talk about uh, a failed motivation and address that and then talk about the correct standard. Okay, so have you ever heard this? You knock on the door, you speak to your coworker, you speak to a relative and they say, I'm already a Christian. Why should I study with you? How would you answer that? <clears throat> Brother Ronald? A person's assurance of salvation could be based on the wrong thing if they don't have a foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that and it, it seems good, but then if you don't go back to that's right. And follow the scriptures like Acts two thirty eight. So they may be uh, they may be have operating off a good feeling, and they may be working off that foundation, and they may be assuming that they are saved. Uh, those are all good points to consider. One thing, just ask them, what did you do to become a Christian? Mm-hmm. You know, if they give the right answer, then you're, you're you don't really have anything to uh, discuss with them. But if they give a wrong, I well, I I trusted Christ as my personal savior. Mm-hmm. I accepted mm-hmm. Christ. Right. Well, the question naturally arises: uh, Is there a scripture that tells us just to accept Christ? That's a good way to get your foot in the door: is just to ask them what they did to become a Christian. Scott, the way your response is phrased leads to the idea that, in my mind, my mind thinking, it's an answer to a question: Would you like to become a Christian? I don't know if we always have to approach a person that way. We could just approach them and ask them to study the Bible and in uh-huh. the midst of that study, uh-huh. let the Bible lead them to the understanding that they really aren't a Christian. <coughs> right. So certainly if you can just if you can get to that Bible study and start studying with that person then and hopefully they'll be able to see that. Uh, one of the things that one time that I ran into this the uh, it was just trying to get a Bible study and the the attitude was, well, why are you talking to me? I'm already saved. Why would you want to study with me? You need to be studying with all these people who are lost. Don't be wasting your time with me. we got nothing to talk about. And so, and, you know, door, boom, right in the face. So uh, so sometimes it, there is that that you're just trying to get your foot in the door to study the Bible, but you're right. You don't want to lay too much out on the table at once and ask too many questions right off the bat. If you can get into that Bible study first and start looking at the passages and let them speak for themselves, and that would be great. Well, you could throw them, throw them first and say, well, maybe I can learn something from you. Mm-hmm. Get that steady going. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a very good point. There was basically two reasons that I came up with. One is unity. And to me, this is very powerful. And actually, the, the handouts that I'll have for next time, spend more time on that. But... Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, praying to God, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so I think that's a powerful question that you can ask somebody. Well, aren't you concerned about reaching the lost? Aren't you concerned about fulfilling Jesus' prayer, about seeking unity and having it? This is something that was important to Jesus. So if it's important to Jesus, shouldn't it be important to us? And I think that's very powerful for getting... Even though, admittedly, we have differences, but we have an obligation, both from Jesus' prayer that's virtually a command to us, but also what Jesus is saying and implying in this prayer is that if the world was, if Christians were unified, then that we would have a much more powerful influence on the world. And, um, and you could think of someone who's just a complete unbeliever. If they see all these different sects of Christians to them, well, how do they know which one's right? And if all these Christians can't get along, then why should if they can't understand the Bible? Why should I even try? 
You can see where somebody might would reason that way. We've given them an excuse to blaspheme the name of the Lord. And, uh, and certainly we don't want to do that. We don't want to be the stumbling block. Is that good reasoning? No. That's, that's not a legitimate excuse. But yet we don't want to be the stumbling block for somebody doing that. So I think that's a good appeal that you can make to someone. Um, another example real quickly is to think back to the Tower of Babel. I think this is a very uh, interesting commentary in the fact that it's coming from God Himself. When He's going to look down at the Tower, He says, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Imagine how much more powerful and how much, in, how much more influential the church would be if all, everybody that wore the name of Christ was united. They were united on His Word, and they were united in doing His will. Think about how much more powerful it would be. And I think we've got divine commentary that says how powerful it would be. There wouldn't be anything withheld from us. So, again, as you're reaching out with someone who considers themselves to already be a Christian, and they would identify themselves this way, I think these are, are very good appeals to make that say, even though we're both already Christians, I'll accept what you're saying temporarily. These are still things that we should discuss anyway even if you consider beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're already saved. Alright, uh, also going along with this, uh, have you ever heard someone say, one church is as good as another? How would you answer that? First one I would say, or I think, would be, which church is God placed with, or which church did Jesus build? Right, right, very important. Do you want to be whatever God wants you to be? Right, right. Anything else? So this gets into kind of the second reason, I think, for studying with other people is uh, is questioning the fact, well, how do you know that you really are saved? How do you know that you're part of the church that God is pleased with? Does Is that true, that God does not care, that really one church is as good as another? And I think there's an, a, a couple of assumptions there that we need to challenge. First of all, there's this idea that, yes, there are all these different denominations, all these different sects, but that's okay. God doesn't really care. Well, that's not right. God does care. He very clearly says that He does. 1 Corinthians 1.10, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. This is not just saying, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, hey, we're all okay. No, He says in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the level of unity that we're striving for. So this is more than just having the same name. And then second of all, the idea is as well, if you get a few things wrong, if you don't believe the right things, no big deal. That's, that's not a, a crucial matter. You know, just as long as you believe, back to the idea, as long as you believe in Jesus, then that's okay. Well, again, that's not a good assumption. Believing false doctrine can condemn both you or me. Uh, here's a verse from 2 Timothy 2.17 where Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says they've strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. And that's key because if your faith is broken, can you be pleased with God? Can you be pleasing to Him? No. Hebrews 11 was at verse 6, that we must have faith. And so if our faith is broken, then we're not going to be pleasing. In other words, these people were lost because they believed the wrong things concerning the resurrection. And so, to me, that's very troubling. If you think, well, as long as you believe in Jesus, you're okay. Well, here's some people who believed in Jesus, but yet they didn't believe the right things concerning the resurrection, and their faith was destroyed as a consequence of that, and these people were lost. 
the Bible talks about the Salem doctrine, which, mm-hmm. which necessarily uh, implies that there are unsound doctrines as well. Right. And, uh, and obviously, every church doesn't teach the same thing. Mm-hmm. One teaches one thing, one teaches something else. I, I go back to, uh, uh, I brought it up to people that um, back in the beginning when uh, God said to uh, to uh, Adam and Eve, Thou shalt surely die. Mm-hmm. The devil comes along and says, Thou shalt not surely die. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it just a matter of uh, just doing the best you can? I, I'm doing the best I can. I, I'll do it this way. Mm-hmm. But God said, Do it another way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes a difference. Uh, That's right. John said, uh, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they're God. Mm-hmm. Many false teachers gone out of the world. That's right. First uh, John four one that you mentioned, and then just all through the Bible you see that yes, it does matter what we believe. That God has not accepted that kind of uh, attitude. Uh, other passages: Galatians five four, Matthew seven twenty one twenty three, Luke six thirty nine. I think all of these are passages we're familiar with, and all these can be used to make the same point that that's that's a flawed assumption that the Bible does not support that. I think of a question Jesus asked uh, his disciples. What do the men say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Some say that. <coughs> well, obviously, they were all were not white. Mm-hmm. Jesus set them straight mm-hmm. by saying, but who do you say that I am? And I think that's a good way to approach. I know I've put lesson along that line where I would say, well, uh, how do we know what is right? We're going to take the attitude all those people were right, the ones who were saying this about Jesus and that Jesus was all the things they say, obviously they were not. Mm-hmm. All right? What about all the different religions? So use that as a means of getting into that discussion. Mm-hmm. The case of Apollos is a, is a good example of that. He was teaching one thing. Uh, Priscilla took him aside and taught him the way of the Lord more perfectly. That's right. And he didn't. he didn't say, well, I'm okay. Exactly. I said, I'm off on one thing. What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. He began to teach the truth after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, people say sometimes, but what I believe is not a false doctrine. I mean, you've got to point that believing false doctrine and condemn you and me. But I don't believe a false doctrine. Mm-hmm. I would reject a false doctrine. Mm-hmm. Then what do you say? And then, then you have to go straight into what they believe. Well, how did you become a Christian, or where are you now, and have to identify something like that so that you can get them looking at the Scripture. And um, hang on a second, Scott. Uh, in all of these things, you may have really just one answer. When you're speaking to somebody, they probably have their mind already made up. They're probably very sure what they believe, and you probably got one chance. And so you want to leave your foot in the door, give them something to get them thinking. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to always end with a question. It's When somebody says something, it's very easy just to brush it aside and say, ah, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. But if somebody leaves you with a question, if you have any shred of honesty, you've got to answer that question. And so if you can just leave someone with a question... Uh, and, and, and you can take any of these approaches and get them thinking then hopefully you can get an answer and hopefully you can work your way to what Scott was saying earlier about having a sit down Bible study with them where you have more time so I think it's important to realize that we can't uh, treat every situation the exact same That, in other words when you're with somebody with that one shot 
you're going to react and you're going to say things differently than when you're sitting down at the kitchen table with them over a Bible study because you've got more luxury at that time. Uh, sometimes, I don't know, you may go to cover this, but uh, what people will sometimes say, but what about my mother? Mm-hmm. What about my father? Mm-hmm. They were honest people. They were good people. They were religious people. They believed in God. They believed in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And maybe you accept maybe you've talked already about some things and these people now have a conflict they know what the Bible says now you've talked about mm-hmm. this but they're having that conflict of if I go against my parents and the way I approach that is say okay I accept the fact that your parents were honest and all they could believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ now if they knew what you know now what would they do about it and, and I think a good question to ask is, did they love you? If, if they had an opportunity, what would they tell you to do? Right. You know, if, if they really loved you and they were as good as you that you said, then wouldn't they encourage you to do what's right? You know, like you said, given what you know now. I think we're going to look at that a little bit, but I think that's that's very appropriate here. Scott, what were you going to say? I'm just going to say, if a person is confident in themselves that they are on the side of truth and they have nothing to fear, mm-hmm. from allowing their position mm-hmm. to be examined by the Bible, there's mm-hmm. nothing to fear. There's only nothing to be lost there. <coughs> we can only gain from subjecting right. our position to the Bible. Right. Uh, Jesus said, uh, I will build my church. Uh, the Lord purchased the church with his own blood. The Lord added to the church daily. There's one body. He is the head of the church, the head of the body, the church. So there's just one church. That's a very good point, is that they're assuming that there's multiple legitimate good churches. And what we see is if we look at Ephesians there, uh, Ephesians 4, or look at, was it Matthew 18, where Jesus says that about building his church? It's always singular. There's only one church. And so the question is, is which church is that? And more importantly, are we striving to be that church? Um, I think that's, that's a very important concept to get across to people. It's that uh, we may not be doing everything exactly right, but we are trying. This is the best we can do. And why would we accept to work with a group that we know is doing things that is wrong? And so I, I think we have to leave that door open for the fact that we still have room to grow and that we still have uh, room to grow closer to being the church that, that Jesus built and following that pattern exactly. Okay, good points. How about this? I don't argue about religion. Can you think of a way to diffuse that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you force us to contend earnestly for the faith. That's not arguing, but uh, I think it has a connection. I I like both of the answers. When somebody's saying that, I usually like to concede a little bit and say, "You're right. You know, fighting is not not approved of in the Bible. We're not so supposed to be squabbling and arguing and going over fighting like this." Uh, I think Second Timothy two twenty four here is good. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must but must be gentle to all, able to teach, and patient. But if you keep reading, this gets into what Brother Buford said. However, we're supposed to correct. We're supposed to contend. So whenever you see squabbling and quarreling condemned in the Bible, it's always you see uh, two phrases attached to it. It's over something that's not important. They're squabbling about words or about genealogies or about particulars of the old law, things that are academic and don't matter. 
or you see that they're that these people are divisive and they're trying to usher in some kind of false doctrine that's going to promote ungodliness. Uh, so, and when you see that particular case, though, we have to deal with those people and we have to correct them. But of course, there's a way to do that. Uh, that doesn't mean that we just unload on these people and open up with both barrels. We're supposed to, in humility, correct these people. And then the passage that uh, Brother Craig mentioned in Jude one uh, three that we're supposed to contend earnestly for the faith. Not our faith, but the faith. Most of the time, you can just say, well, what does the Bible say about this? And then you can carry them to the Bible and show them where they're fussing with you and you're up over in the Bible. Well, they're not fussing with me. They're fussing against the Bible. That's right. And I say, hey, the Bible says this. The Word says this. Mm-hmm. And 99% of the time, that's what it is. It, that should always be our goal is that we're trying to get people to go back to the Bible and to look at the Bible and deal with the Bible we want them to deal with God. We don't want them to deal with right. us. And, uh, and one of the things that I think is important to notice is that when you're dealing with people who are saying these things, you're basically stuck at step one. They don't want to go to the Bible. They don't want to talk about this. I mean, their motivation is broke, and they have well, really no you, interest in it. What do you think? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are good thoughts. What does your church teach on this? I've had people say, well, you say it. And I always correct them by saying, no, what does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. And have them read a passage where we just discussed it. Right. And uh, that generally helps smooth things out and they realize you're not just talking about yourself. Right. You're talking about what God says. And that's an important point is you want to get them off of working from their church or working from what their pastor or their preacher says and let's look at what the Bible says. Harold writes a lot of people, what do you think about this? And I, uh, one of the best things I, I can think of is to say, I tell you, I, I can show you what I believe. Mm-hmm. And then interject the Bible at that time. I think if at any point, if you can just do what Jesus said, said, well, it says here. And if you can just quote, if you can give them a book, chapter, verse, great. If you can't think of the verse, book, and chapter, that's better than nothing. Or if you can just say the book. You know, the more that you can give them to quote from it, to say, look, this is my authority. This is where I'm operating from. It's from what God said. Then that can change things and get them to start thinking. And that can be very different. Like Paul, when they won't accept what the Bible says, you just have to take the dust off your feet and move on. Right. And that's always, uh, unfortunately, that's more often the reality than not. And we have to realize that there is that, that possibility and be prepared for that. All right. So here's just something just to kind of break up the pace a little bit. Here's a particular tip. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I think this verse is very powerful that, again, we're not just unloading on people. There should be a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of compassion. There should be some grace that we're being patient with the people that we're teaching and working with. And, uh, and if, if we're arrogant in any way, that's going to come across. And sometimes it can come across even when we don't mean for it to. And so, and that can detonate any discussion before it gets started. So it's more than just knowing what to say. It's also knowing how to say. And, and I think this passage is also important because it shows us preparation. That we may know how you ought to answer each one. This is something we're doing ahead of time. This is some preparation we're putting in. If, once we get into that situation, it's a little bit too late to be doing that kind of homework. So we want to be prepared both in what we know, but also our attitudes and make sure that we express those adequately. Okay, so now let's shift and talk about the wrong standard. 
And we've been talking about this already. Is uh, first part we've been talking about people who just they just don't want to study, and they've got they're they're brushing you off. And, and trying to get them to care, and trying to get them to be interested. That's what we've been talking about. Now we want to talk about people, and there's, there's not a clear line here, obviously, but we want to talk about people who are operating from the wrong standard. They're making their decisions based off uh, a rule that's, that's not correct. All right, so how about this? I feel that this is right. You ever heard somebody say something to that effect? Or maybe we should just let our conscience be our guide? First of all, our feelings cannot be trusted. There's a lot of things we may feel to be true, but they're just simply not. Our feelings do not um, create reality. And so uh, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. Uh, Proverbs 14.12, uh, Proverbs 16.2, Jeremiah 10.23, all these familiar passages. The way of man is not within itself. Our feelings just can't be trusted. And to me, this is a powerful example. For example... Paul was sincerely wrong. And I know you guys have all seen this. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. For Paul said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, keep in mind, that's Acts 23.1. Keep in mind that in Acts 22.4, he said that up before this, previously, that he persecuted the way, Jesus, the Christianity, to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So he was, he was a savage persecutor of Christianity, that he was actually killing people, but yet he was doing it in all good conscience. And to me, that's incredibly powerful. Here's somebody whose conscience was unspotted, but yet they were as wrong as wrong can be. You couldn't be any further off from the truth. And uh, Paul says that he did this because he did it ignorantly. He did it in unbelief. He just didn't know. And so our conscience, our feelings, they're limited by what we know. And if we don't know the right material, they're not going to give us the right information. They're not going to guide us in the right way, just like Paul. So our feelings, our conscience, we can't operate just based off of those. All right, and we talked about this already a little bit, about parents and traditions. Uh, People say, well, you know, people have been talking about this for hundreds of years. And my church, we have these traditions that have been handed down for hundreds of years. You can hear different things like that. Or we should do what our fathers have done. Or we should do what our parents. What about my parents? If what you're saying is right, then what does that mean about my parents and their state? Well, lots of different ways you could answer this. Uh, Brother Lambert brought up one way already I think is good. is to ask, ask them, well, what would your parents want you to do knowing what you know now? Uh, another, I think something that you just have to at some point has to be addressed by that person is, is who is the most important? Who are you serving? Is it your parents? Is it your ancestry? Is it this church? Or are you following Jesus? Uh, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So we have to put Jesus before everything else. And until we do that, we're going to be stuck. And we're not going to be able to make it to the next step. And we're not going to be able to be saved. And then we could say the same thing about traditions. Whose comes first, God or man's? A uh, familiar passage in Matthew 15, 3, 9, where the Pharisees and the scribes were transgressing the commandment of God through their traditions. And he says, in vain they worship God. So, uh, very familiar problems. How about this? All Christians believe this. I mean, we're, I'm in the majority here. And you're, you're this strange, <coughs> fringe, outside movement. How do you deal with that? 
majority is not always right. In fact, Jesus said uh, that the majority, I think it's in Matthew chapter 7, I believe, that the majority is, is wrong. Mm-hmm. The majority goes the wrong way, the broad way that leads to destruction. All of these answers, and I think really any time you're dealing with anybody, they're based on at least one assumption. And identifying those assumptions in your mind and addressing those assumptions, I think, is one of the most productive ways to getting this. And uh, as you brought out, the assumption here is is that, well, the majority is who's going to be saved. That's the way it works. Brother Craig? In the uh, parable of the uh, sowing of the seed, uh, where the seed fell on rocky places, uh, those people that received the word, they believed it, but they didn't have the roots or the, the uh, support to continue faithful. So that those that believe can uh, wander away from the truth. Mm-hmm. So I think this was brought out. Think back to the time of Noah. There was few people saved then. Eight. And there was probably thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Who knows how many people. But eight people were saved. So God doesn't always go with the majority. Um, majority doesn't mean much to God. Brother Ronald? I think there's a passage in Joshua that would go along with this in Joshua okay. 24. Mm-hmm. 14. All right, would you like to read it? Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the blood in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And I know it's talking about different people, but I think the principle you wouldn't know mm-hmm. if they were serving That's right. Well, you go back to even before Abraham, Terah and, and their forefathers, they were idol worshippers. And I think that's the point that he's bringing out, is that we have to leave that idolatry, or they had to leave that idolatry behind. Whether it was that, or it was the idolatry they picked up in Egypt, in either case, they have to leave that behind. And if they didn't, where would they be? They'd be lost with their parents. It's a good verse to bring up. The rich man in Luke 16 is a prime example here. He he didn't want his brothers to come to that place. Misery, mm-hmm. the love's company didn't apply there. He right. Didn't want, he didn't want them there. That's a good point. That uh, it, I think it would be hard for someone to accept that was a particular case, but if they believe that their loved one may have been lost, I think that's a good point to bring up. Is you know, would, would they want you to be there with them? And uh, obviously they wouldn't. Uh, and then Jesus just flatly says that there will only be few who go to heaven, that broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So again, we're, not only does Jesus and God not go with the majority, they've already told us that the majority is wrong. And so if now we can't use that as our basis and say, well, whatever everybody else believes, I'm going to do the opposite. No, obviously you can't do that either. But we can't take comfort in the fact that we stand with the majority. Not to follow them up, excuse me. Right, right. That's, that's a, a good thought as well, not to follow them up. It, it all, all comes down to knowing the truth. And the word the means there's only one. Mm-hmm. Know the truth. The truth will make you free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about this? As long as you're doing your best. As long as you're sincere. Paul was doing That's right. We go, that'd be, you could go back to Paul again and look at those, that chain of verses. You know, he was doing his best. Um, and so we could ask the question, well, this may not be the best question to bring up right off the bat, but first of all, how do you know you're doing your best? 
there's a lot of problems with this statement. First of all, you can't do better than your best. And, you know, how could you even do better than that? So obviously that's not what we're asking. Um, but second of all, how do you know that you're really doing your best? I think this verse is powerful. For I know nothing against myself. This is Paul speaking. Yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. I think there's this trap that, that people and certainly the devil tries to suck us into, which is, is trying to stand on God's side of the fence and trying to say, well, what would God do? How is he going to judge? And then based on that, I'll decide how I'm going to do. We have to remember we're on this side of the fence. What we have is the Bible, and we have to operate from that. And we can't be presumptuous and try to operate off something else. Okay. Um, let me see if I can just kind of quickly race through some of these since we're running low on time. Matthew 7, 21-23. Uh, clearly, sincerity and good works. All the good that we do in Jesus' name is not enough. So we have to obey the standard by which we'll be judged. All right. Um, I think this is an important thing. I wish we could spend more time here. Remember to speak to each person. I think it's so powerful that Jesus, when he was dealing with the rich young ruler, that he took time to look at him, that he loved him, and then he said to him. So that says we're going to have to deal with each person on a case-by-case basis. There's not some magic formula that's going to work for everybody. Um, again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. There's some amount of judgment that has to be applied in dealing with each person to decide how you will approach that person. Uh, Jude 1, 22-23, making a distinction. Alright, I'm led by the Holy Spirit, not the Bible. And this this one's... Difficult. First of all, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit that's leading you? Could be the devil, could be his servants. I mean, the Bible very clearly talks about false apostles and the devil transforming himself to appear as an angel of light. Could be yourself. Um, lots of verses in the Old Testament where, where God said, you know, don't make yourself have dreams, don't make yourself have visions. You're just seeing what you want to see. That was a possibility in the old, and it's a possibility in the new. And then, second of all, modern revelation cannot contradict the ancient. Uh, very familiar verses, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. You know, angel from heaven, preach another gospel, let him be a curse. Um, tip number three, adapt. As we're dealing with other people, we cannot expect them to conform to us. I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm talking about personalities or any kind of other little human barriers that may get in the way. Uh, Paul said, showed his ident- or his adaptability to the Jew, he was a Jew, to the Gentile, he was a Gentile. Everything that's cultural, everything that's non-essential, we need to be the ones who bend. We shouldn't be putting extra barriers in front of other people that we're studying with. All right, here's another one. Words cannot contain the infinite God. Well, but the Bible contains what we need to know. The, the problem is, is we're not trying to grab God and contain Him in the Bible. The question is, can God tell us what we need to know? And really, that's the fundamental problem here, is it's not a charge against us and the fact that we're frail. What we're really charging God with by this statement is saying, He is incapable of designing us such that He can communicate with us or crafting a message such that it will reach us. I mean, really, it's, it's a throw in God's face. Uh, he very clearly says in Ephesians 3, 3-5, to Paul says, I've written briefly already, by which when you read, you may understand. Now, do we believe God? Do we trust God in His ability to do that? Or do we not? <coughs> Alright, that is your interpretation, but there's only one interpretation. The one that God intended. God cannot lie. There's no way to get multiple interpretations from the Bible and both of them be correct. So what that requires is that we have to be diligent to understand it. There are things that are difficult to understand, and if we're not careful, 
We can twist them to our own destruction. So that requires diligence on our part. Uh, another tip, make sure we do our homework. We need to be ready ahead of time and think about these things ahead of time. And uh, I think part of doing this is on each of these things, we, it is good to identify, if possible, one scripture and one point because you only may get one shot. So you want to lead with your strongest foot. And the only way you can identify what that is is to spend time ahead of, before that occurs and say, okay, what would I say in this situation? And um, in that regard, it seems kind of trivial, but that's what's required. All right. Any other comments or questions before we close? Talk about the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Telling someone. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with a man one time. One of my poor people with the Holy Spirit. You know, preached to me. I said, how do you know it the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. How do you know it wasn't the devil? He said, well, the Holy Spirit speaks in a soft, sweet voice. But the devil speaks in a very gruff voice. <laughs> how does he know that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, you just... You just keep asking, well, how do you know that? And then, yeah, I mean, that is for sure. All right, next time we're going to have uh, Gary be speaking to us, and we'll be studying Islam. Thank you for your time and attention.